0: I'm Father Mitch Pacol, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the Word of God, and we are especially looking at it to understand how to pray and find and deepen our relationship with Christ and deepen it. Today, we will look at the way that the Roman soldiers mocked our Lord throughout his trials and crucifixion, and. As people, even in modern society, sometimes we still experience severe and vile mockery. Jesus is able to meet us in the midst of that pain because he went through it and we can relate to him there. Now, of course, we'd love to have you comment on anything that we have here, you can do that by sending an email to scriptureandtradition at EWTN.com or follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. Now, remember, we're still going through my book, Wheat and Tares, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. Now, you can get this at EWTN's religious catalog, just go to EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 81098. Now, if you're following us with us in the book, we are on page 105. So let's get over to that material. Now, again, as I started off today, mockery of Jesus Christ is repeated throughout his trials and throughout his crucifixion it happens again and again and this is typical when people in a society have the upper hand when folks you know are able to be sort of at, at the Uh, steering wheel of society, either because of their numbers and power or their financial power and so on, Um, they are able to demonstrate how powerful they are. They can show off their strength by mocking and ridiculing other people, especially the weak, or they can ridicule their opponents. And that even happens more when their opponents come under their control. So this is something that happens. And it's quite common for people to attack uh, and mock their moral superiors. People who are morally better, than the person doing the mockery, uh, when they don't have a good argument against the moral superiority. When when somebody is a better person, uh, kinder, more just, and more virtuous and more prudent, they don't know how to argue against them, so they just make fun of them. That's not so unusual, huh? And this is a way to make their own immoral behavior look better. This is something that uh, oftentimes happens uh, as a way to attack somebody else's moral integrity. Some of these dynamics, especially this latter, this idea that um, a way to bring down the morally superior person down to the level of the immoral person is perhaps a way to explain the mockery of Jesus that was done by the soldiers. They know that they couldn't compare to him. He's obviously much beloved. They've witnessed him in the temple and such. So this is their way to do that. And soldiers might do that with prisoners. You know, they have soldiers and people in the prison systems have inmates under their control for a while. And this is something that is, you know, very important to note. And that uh, is... A WAY THAT THEY CAN ALSO SHOW THEIR MORAL SUPERIORITY TO A PRISONER WHOM THEY PROBABLY HAD ALREADY SOME INSTINCT, HAD NOT DONE ANYTHING WRONG, BUT THEY CAN ACT STRONGER THAN HE. NOW, WE CAN ALSO SEE THAT uh, FIVE DAYS EARLIER, in, WHEN JESUS WAS IN THE TEMPLE, they had been unable to prevent Jesus from speaking to the people. They couldn't stop him from driving out the money changers in the temple, who, by the way, worked with the Sadducees. The Sadducee party, the party of the high priests, were the ones pretty much in charge of those money changers. And they were the ones selling the animals. And it was, you know, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, as well as according to the Mishnah and the New Testament. So you have three different sources all agreeing that these money changers and the people selling the animals were very much corrupt, and they were making a lot of extra money. So since they couldn't uh, stop him, they would still be kind of angry at him. Also, six months earlier, according to the Gospel of St. John, Jesus had been in the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is in the autumn, exactly six months uh, before uh, the the Passover. And during that time, they were overwhelmed by his teaching and they even got in trouble with the high priests. If you take a look at John chapter 7, verse 32, it says that the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest Jesus. And then in verse 44, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on Jesus. The officers then went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, are you led astray? You also? Have any of the authorities or of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, who do not know the law, are cursed. So, you know, at six months before, some of these same soldiers, the temple guards, had been unable to arrest him. And that may explain why they are willing to mock him now. They, when they were afraid of him, they backed off. And so now that they have him under their control, they make fun of him. And as it says in the texts, uh, let, let's take a look at some of them in Luke 22, verses 63 to 65. Now the men who were holding Jesus mocked him and beat him. They also blindfolded him and asked him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they spoke many other words against him, reviling him. So this is one of the things that they do to him. They uh, were once unable to... Do I think so they they make this fun of him, and we see this also mentioned in Mark fourteen verse sixty five, and again in John eighteen verse twenty two. Now, this is worthy of our own contemplation, because mockery of others is not just something of ancient cultures. People do that in modern society. And I'm not talking just about comedians. They mock people, including themselves. Uh, The funniest comedians usually make fun of themselves uh, more than others. But they make fun of other people, too. But it's much more typical for those who are moral or political or religious opponents to mock their opposition. And they always look for the vulnerabilities in their target. That's what mockery does. It looks for real vulnerabilities in something. Uh, For instance, most people fail to reach all the ideals of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. We can't all be as strong as some, or handsome as others, as pretty as some, or as uh, womanly and strong as others. And this, you know, uh, attack, uh, especially on various people's uh, sexual you know, identity, their identity as a male or as a female is fairly common. This is oftentimes what lots of boys do, especially if a boy might have uh, more sensitive qualities or is, is in some ways effeminate or has not developed physically with muscles and such, or as clumsy, all those other things, or what might even be perceived as homosexual. I don't think it's mocked quite as much today as it used to be, but it is still uh, something that boys ridicule. and. Uh, Sometimes when girls have their own forms of harshness or masculine behaviors and such, girls will be mocked uh, by other girls. I, you know, don't know. Uh, I was not quite so privy to the ways that girls mocked each other, but just observing my sister and her friends, they certainly did make fun of each other as well, and. You know, our Lord Jesus went through His experience of mockery with a strong silence. His was a silence of great strength and power, quite frankly. But many people are crushed by the mockery, especially children. You know, younger people are trying to make friends, They want to have acceptance from their peers. That's one of the really important things that uh, rises in a child's mind. The other kids don't want to play with me or the other kids won't let me on the team and all all sorts of things along that line. And this, uh, you know, is uh, something very painful to be mocked because it, can help emphasize exclusion uh, if they don't work out you know, ways to deal with it. Um, so that's something that happens. And what is typical is they will retreat into f- relationships with people that are just like themselves. They'll seek out like-minded folks who are also on the fringes of childhood society and they will hang out with them. Or sometimes they hang out with kids that might protect them, that sometimes happens, and yet when they even when they try to seek refuge from mockery and rejection and things like that, they still can become FAIRLY VULNERABLE TO SEXUAL AND PHYSICAL ABUSE. THEY, YOU KNOW, SOMEHOW THE BULLIES OF THE WORLD SPOT THEM AND RECOGNIZE THEM. AND uh, IT'S FAIRLY INTERESTING HOW MANY OF THE BULLIES AND THOSE WHO ARE BULLIED BOTH COME FROM FAMILIES that have similar problems where the kid is not really in a very good relationship with his parents and especially not with their fathers. It's not unusual. And it's remarkable when you hear some of the studies that the bullies and the bullied both have similar problems with their dad and they're working out their problems with each other very oddly. That happens. And this is something that we then say, all right, how do we deal with this religiously? We can take a look at the way our Lord was being bullied by these soldiers and mocked so that Jesus can meet the victims of uh, being bullied and mocked today. He can meet them where they are. He was in that experience, but with a strength and a power that w- was very important. He actually achieved a certain type of victory over the soldiers by being silent, by not answering them or not whining or not punching back and things like that. He, his silent endurance was an act of offering himself up for all people who are bullied today, for all people who are victims of such attack. And, you know, this is something that we can see shown a little bit later in the gospel when he prays to his father. It says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This would have been very much part of his attitude throughout this mockery by the soldiers. And something that he does by entering into the experience of being bullied by these soldiers is that he knows what it's like, he understands the experience, and he meets the bullied where they are vulnerable. He doesn't just tell them, grow up, you know, stand up straight, whatever. He he meets them at that point in his own silence. And he is winning a grace by enduring the, the soldier's mockery. He's winning a type of grace for all those who are mocked and ridiculed and bullied. And he does that for any victim of bullying. And it would be worthwhile for those people who are victims of bullies to go to Christ at this point of this first of a number of mockeries by the soldiers, and tell Christ and picture being there with him as this is going on, and, Share with him in your prayer your own experience of this, how this happened. And what would he say back to you as you go through this, you know, telling you stories of being bullied, what would he say to you? I don't, I don't know. You know, that would be up to you and your prayer with him. But it's not just a matter of praying, make the bullies go away. No, it's meeting Christ when he's bullied and bringing your own experiences of bullying. And let the wound in his heart at hearing this mockery against himself, God Almighty, with all of his infinite power, taking it. And meet him there. And what would he say to you? And let him be a source of healing for the loneliness and pain that you may experience with these uh, this being bullied. Whether it's an f- emotional kind of bullying, verbal, or physical, what would he say to you? And to find in that, Perhaps a strength to learn how to stand up to it, maybe not just with silence. I don't know what he'll say to you for your situation, but he will help to address it as you bring your pain into his and let his pain. Remember the theme here, by his wounds, we are healed, and to let him with this infinite power he has, and yet endurance, meet you so that you can gain another kind of wisdom as to how to overcome bullying in your life. We're going to see more of these cases later on as the passion develops. I think there's six times that they do so. And each time we can go more deeply into this, but wanted to start off here. Let's take a break. We'll come back in a couple minutes and continue on with talking about the trial before the Sanhedrin. basically finished up what happened at the house of Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and Annas also being a retired high priest. Uh, now we move to the house of the present high priest, the high priest who was high priest at the time of Jesus. This was Caiaphas. And he was a high priest from 26 to 36 AD. And uh, the whole time that Pontius Pilate was the procurator. So they had their own relationship. Uh, and we see this change in Matthew 26, verses 57 to 58. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to, the house, to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. But Peter followed him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end." So that's where Peter is cowering there in the courtyard. Now, let's take a look at the primary players. Again, Caiaphas, uh, who's the high priest, and the other Sadducees. The other chief priests or other priests belonged to the Sadducee party. Um, uh, And this was the group that had the most political clout at the time. They had the favor of the Romans uh, in many ways and were appointed by the Roman officials to the high priesthood. So, you know, going all, they should have been direct descendants of the high priest Aaron, but the last high priest who was a direct descendant of Aaron to be in charge was removed from office in 175 B.C., a good, you know, over 200 years earlier. So politics had entered into a lot of the role with the Sadducees and the priesthood. Then there were also the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were not priests. They were lay people. And the Pharisee movement was, uh, there were some priests in the Pharisee party, but for the most part, it was a lay movement uh, that called for reform. And when it mentions the scribes, the scribes were the intellectuals, the scholars among the Pharisees. And then there were the elders, those were the older members of the community who had the most to say. They would be the leaders because of their experience. Now, we see that um, these uh, various parties uh, sought false witness against Jesus. Now, this is right against the Eighth Commandment. We're going to see a lot of elements of breaking the Eighth Commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. That's not just a... SOMETHING IN CIVIL LAW, THAT'S GOD'S LAW, THAT YOU DON'T BEAR FALSE WITNESS. AND THEY WERE LOOKING FOR FALSE TESTIMONY AGAINST JESUS uh, BECAUSE THEY WANTED TO PUT HIM TO DEATH MORE THAN THEY WANTED TO FIND THE TRUTH. THEY WERE MORE INTERESTED IN GETTING RID OF JESUS THAN IN KNOWING THE TRUTH ABOUT JESUS. AND... One of the things that you see mentioned is that as is always the case with false witnesses and lies, they cannot agree among themselves. If you've ever caught a small child in a lie, you can quickly find out that their story doesn't add up. You know, that, that's a, a very important uh, issue. Uh, And so you can catch them. And that's what goes on here. And the reason they needed to get that agreement is that Jewish law requires at least two witnesses to a capital crime in order to execute somebody. So if you see in the book of Numbers, chapter 35, verse 30, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness as to have more than one similarly in Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15 a single witness shall not prevail against a man for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be sustained." Well, they couldn't find him. Uh, And then, after a whole string of deceivers spoke up, they found two men who agreed on this. And we see this in Matthew 26, verse 59. Now, the chief priest and the whole council, which is what Sanhedrin means, sought false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now, our Lord Jesus hadn't said that. That's not what he actually said. We have in John chapter 19 that Jesus said to the Pharisees and Sadducees in the temple in John 2, 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He didn't say, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And St. John makes note that, he, in uh, chapter 2, verse John 2, verse 21, but he spoke of the temple of his body. You know how we see, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 5, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And this is a very important point. Well, he was speaking about his own body, and that was what was clear there. So he wasn't talking about the building. So they use this false testimony against Jesus, and they give false witness. Now, this, too, is something I'd like to relate. Uh, it's some, I think we can relate this to the sex abuse scandal, but we can also relate it to a lot of other experiences people have in life about false accusations that they get. This happens fairly frequently. Um, In fact, I remember some years ago, there were fathers who were being falsely accused of sexually abusing their daughters. And, you know, this caused great turmoil, and, you know, people had, it became a movement. Uh, It was based on people, you know, studying a particular book. Um, So false accusations, you know, are part of uh, some areas of life, and they, false accusations have been leveled at people, you know, during the sex abuse crisis in the church. um, That's another very evil component that came into the whole situation. So especially in the early years of the scandal and even into its later development, a lot of the young people who were exposing what had happened to them were not believed. And they were falsely accused of lying, sometimes by their own parents. they, their, their own parents didn't believe. I, I knew of cases like this, where the boys just weren't believed, so they just dropped the the, the situation for a number of years. Uh, and sometimes the church officials didn't believe them and rejected their witness. Uh, and there are times where you know they just got to doubt themselves. Maybe it didn't happen. This. This is something that went on in those early years. Um, It was something that was so difficult to believe that people, you know, just didn't accept it. And they were treated as false witnesses when they weren't. Um, And then you, you have other people not the victims, but people who suspected that abuse was taking place. And they also were not believed. And they were, you know, false things were said about them. And then you also have to realize, especially among the uh, perpetrators of the abuse who were repeating it, some, most of the clergy who had done sexual abuse had done it once. Again, that's once too many. That's not an excuse. Don't try to look at that as some excuse. It's not right. But it was done once, and they realized, oh, this is wrong. They usually admitted their failure more readily. But some of the ones that were repeat offenders denied it. AND DENIED IT, uh, some, IN SOME CASES, TO THEIR DEATH. Um, YOU KNOW, THEY JUST, uh, wouldn't. They, THEY TRIED TO COVER UP THE TRACKS, the AND um, SOMETIMES THEY EVEN GOT, YOU KNOW, THEIR BISHOPS OR OTHER FRIENDS TO HELP THEM COVER IT UP. AND THIS WAS SHOWN IN SOME OF THE RECORDS LATER ON. SO THAT'S ONE ISSUE. And then there are also cases that have happened where false accusations were made against priests and bishops uh, over the years and part in some cases it was because there were lucrative lawsuits at stake that was sometimes the reason there were other times when completely innocent Clergy were removed from their position and not allowed to return, even if they were exonerated. I've mentioned this kind of thing before, that priests who had done nothing wrong at all were still removed, and even when their innocence was proven, they were not allowed back. Sometimes they were, sometimes not. And uh, the suspicion clung to them. And in some cases, I have known where priests had died and they couldn't defend themselves anymore. They tried. And then after it was shown that the accusations were completely false and could not be true, even then they were not exonerated in the press, for instance, Uh, after they had died, that the bad reputation stayed with them. A lot of people didn't know that they were proven to be innocent. That happened. Now, this is something that we have to take a look at in light of our Lord experiencing these false accusations. First of all, the sexual abuse itself is something that is inflicts a lot of pain, especially on young people. Uh, and that's bad enough, but then when there are issues, issues of falsehood spoken about them, when they are treated as false witnesses, uh, and when there's deception, that just adds to the pain. It's very important to understand this about human nature. Human nature is made for the truth. The mind is made for what's true. And this right to the truth, we have a right to the truth, and oftentimes this is violated uh, in the whole process of the sexual abuse cases, just as it was in the trial of Jesus. This is something worth paying attention to. And the victims of lies under oath can discover a new level of integrity by standing next to Jesus, picture themselves being there with Jesus as one false witness after another comes to him. And where finally two of them actually agree on it. And stand by him who is truth personified as he listened to the lies spoken about him. Remember how in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me because he is truth. Personified, he had to listen to lies spoken about him under oath, because they took an oath when they were in in trial, and the priests and Pharisees were looking for false witnesses, and Jesus had to listen to all these different kind of lies, and through it they confirmed. THE TEACHING THAT HE HAD GIVEN EARLIER AT THE FEAST OF TABERNACLES, SIX MONTHS BEFORE THIS HAPPENED. TAKE A LOOK AT JOHN 8, 44-45, VERY IMPORTANT VERSE, WHERE IT SAYS, YOU ARE OF YOUR FATHER THE DEVIL, AND YOUR WILL IS TO DO YOUR FATHER'S DESIRES. HE WAS A MURDERER FROM THE BEGINNING and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. That those verses of John eight, forty four to forty five, are extremely important. and, and to know that Jesus had said this six months before these false witnesses. He knew that they were liars, and yet he stood there in silence. And it's important to note that no matter how strongly falsehood seems to hold sway for a while, it always falls apart. Falsehood cannot stand on its own. It eventually is revealed to be false. And it may be discovered in this life, as we know in some cases, for the young people who were abused or for clergy who were falsely abused or for other people falsely accused. Eventually, the truth comes out. And if it is not known in this life, it will eventually be known before God. He knows the truth, and He will reward the truth. So even if you're a victim of falsehood, we have to remember that it is Jesus Christ who will come at the end of time to judge the living and the dead, and He will judge truly. So that we can maintain our integrity and the truth of what we've done. And even if no one recognizes it in this life, God will ultimately recognize it and rectify it. He will make the full truth known. And this is something that we also can put our trust in Jesus, who was eventually vindicated of these false accusations, when he rose from the dead. But we too can expect vindication of falsehood of any kind when we stand before God, our judge, and he recognizes the truth in our hearts. That's why we must maintain our integrity and stay with the truth no matter what the world accepts or understands about uh, the, the truth or falsehood. Our Lord did that, and He encourages us to do the same. All right, we'll stop there. Um, Next week, we'll talk more about what the silence of Jesus in this trial means. So uh, we'll continue on with the trial. All right, let's take a look here at, you know, some of the emails that you have sent. And... um, Let me start off with one from a woman named Mary. She says, Hello, Father Pacwa. I'm confused and concerned that I may head in the wrong direction. The bishops are supposed to hand on the revelation given to us by Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and we are supposed to follow their guidance. However, in the past and even today, not all bishops agree. Sometimes they contradict one another. In the past, many of the heresies were taught by bishops. What are we to do? I presume that we can find what the church has always taught everywhere according to the catechism. However, I know we can be led astray by trusting in our own understanding. I hope you can understand my dilemma and give me some guidance. Mary. Yeah, Mary, let me say this. Um, the Holy Spirit will not let the church as a whole go astray. He promises to guide us, and this is is something very important. And we can look, there are a number of places where you can look to the catechism, as you mentioned, and there are also the official decrees of the church from the councils and various papal decrees. And that these decrees are, you know, the official teaching of the church. So they're usually written in a very dry way, straightforward way, but they are clear. And when a bishop varies from sacred scripture and from the authoritative teaching of the church, that bishop is wrong. He can't, you know, even if he has other bishops agree with him, uh, if he and they are contradicting the teaching of the church, and you mentioned from ancient times, uh, a classic example is how 85% of the bishops in the Eastern Church had become Aryan heretics. It wasn't so widely accepted in the West, but it was accepted by many of the Eastern bishops because they were actually looking for favor from the government, especially from the Emperor who accepted the Aryan teaching. Now, they were wrong. AND they, THE COUNCIL OF NICAEA AND LATER THE COUNCILS OF SECOND CONSTANTINOPLE AND CHALCEDON HAD ALL SHOWN WHAT THE CHURCH'S TEACHING WAS AND THEY JUST WOULD NOT ACCEPT CHURCH TEACHING. WE HAVE THAT TODAY um, WITH ANY OF THOSE BISHOPS OR PRIESTS WHO HAD DONE SEXUAL ABUSE. Or those who are trying to promote sexual immorality and saying that this is what the culture does; it's normal. No, we don't. We cannot accept their false teaching, and we we accept what the church has taught and continues to teach. That will remain firm, and this is going to be um, where great. Not merely reading and studying the catechism. But I would urge people to bring it to their prayer. And when the catechism cites biblical passages, look them up and pray over them so that your understanding is not only an understanding in your head, though that's extremely important, but also a love from your heart for the truth that God reveals. THE FALSEHOODS ARE, AS OUR LORD JESUS SAID IN JOHN 8, 44-45, THOSE FALSEHOODS ARE FROM SATAN. HE'S THE FATHER OF LIES. NOT THAT THEY'RE POSSESSED OR SOMETHING LIKE THAT, BUT THE FALSE TEACHING COMES FROM THE BAD SPIRIT. AND THE TRUTH IS FROM THE HOLY SPIRIT, WHO IS THE SPIRIT OF TRUTH, AND FROM JESUS CHRIST, WHO PERSONIFIES TRUTH. THAT'S WHERE WE STICK. And we want to contemplate that truth and make it part of us uh, by praying over it. I urge you to do that. Okay, Mary? And then we have Marius, who lives in Ireland. Great to hear from uh, the Emerald Isle. It says Dear Father Mitch, how can I develop a deeper hunger for the Eucharist? I'm a convert to Catholicism, Marius in Ireland. Couple things. It's like almost any other relationship of love. To love somebody, you need to spend time with them. You need to speak your heart and listen. How do we do that with the Eucharist? First, I would urge you, Marius, go to Mass as often as possible. Uh, When I was a little boy, Uh, We had, uh, you know, mass every day before school started. And then the sisters would give us a little bit of time to eat a a quick bit of breakfast before class started. We even had uh, milk, you know, that they would give us right after mass so we could go to Holy Communion, uh, keep the fast, and then get started with class. Um, And that was a very important part Of growing up after I made my first communion. And in high school, it was, I went to high school seminary, and we lived at home, but we were expected to go to daily mass. Uh, So we did. That was just one of the rules of the school, to get to daily mass. So we got up early and went to mass. Going to mass as often as possible um, is very essential. Next thing I would recommend, is that you take some time in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament, either before you go to Mass or after you've been to Mass, if you have a few minutes. Try to make a holy hour before the Blessed Sacrament as often as you can. I would urge you, Marius, bring your Bible with you, or follow-up from the question with Mary uh, a couple minutes ago to bring the catechism. And this, most of us are not going to have visions or hear with our ears and such from Jesus. But the words that He will speak to us, where He will talk to our hearts, is in Scripture. So keep in mind that the same Jesus that's in the Gospels is present in the Blessed Sacrament and meditate on these gospel passages with a sense that the Lord Jesus in that tabernacle is speaking those words to you. And when a certain word seems to be highlighted for you, when it just sort of comes alive for you, then I would urge you to make sure that you take time to listen to that word. Pay attention to that so that you hear Him speaking back. Again, speak to Him what's in your heart, but also hear from Him, especially through meditating on sacred Scripture. That's going to be the Word that He speaks to you, and again, it's that same Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament that is in the Gospel. Let Him speak to your heart, okay? By by the way, I almost forgot, before we get to another email, I just want to remind you to join me tomorrow night, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. We will be speaking with Bear Wozniak. We know him. He's been on the show before. And we will talk about the ways men can lay a foundation of virtue and honor as they unapologetically follow a path to manliness is very, very important. Uh, It's got uh, some important material on that, so I recommend that, okay? All right, let's take another email. This one is from Gino in Ohio. Father Paco, if both parents, father and mother, have been baptized and cleansed from their original sin, how is it that... uh, their, their children are born with original sin and have to be baptized. Gino in Ohio. Well, Gino, the original sin is a weakness that is born into us. Uh, I, this is the example I like to use. I hope it's helpful to you. Imagine that you were born as a prince In the royal house of England. You would have been a a, a prince had your family stayed in good favor, but your great 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 grandfather betrayed the king and perhaps supported the Americans in the American Revolution. So he was kicked out from being a prince. Now on one hand, you still have that princely heritage in you, but you've lost it, not because of something you did, your grandfather did. And everyone in your family is born without that ability to be a prince. So you, you, and that gets passed on. We are born without original justice. Everybody is born that way. And everybody has to enter into the relationship with God. Everybody has to be baptized. You don't pass on baptism because baptism is not a gift from the parents. It is a grace from God. So everybody has to be reinstated to their royal dignity where God is your Father, he adopts us in baptism and restores us as princes and princesses in the kingdom of God. We become restored to our royalty, but each one has to do it. I remember reading a wonderful Protestant minister named David DuPlessis. He was from South Africa. And he had this line. He said, God has no grandchildren. He only has children. So your children cannot be sort of born as the grandchildren of God, but they have to be born again in every generation. And that's why that's the case. All right. And then we have an email from Jessica, who is at place where I used to teach, University of Dallas. Dear Father Mitch, when our Lord was a young boy and was found in the temple after three days, scripture said that his parents did not understand what he meant by his answer to them. To add more to this, I've read The Mystical City of God by Venerable Mary of Agreda. And in that same passage, it says that God caused them not to understand what Christ meant by his response. Why could they not understand his answer? And what is the bigger picture symbolism in the episode of Our Lord's Life? If you notice, FINDING OF THE CHILD JESUS IN THE TEMPLE IS A JOYFUL MYSTERY. IT IS SOMETHING THAT IS BEYOND OUR FULL COMPREHENSION AND OUR LADY'S COMPREHENSION. EVEN THOUGH SHE IS WITHOUT SIN, SHE DOESN'T UNDERSTAND EVERYTHING. SHE HAS TO PONDER THESE THINGS IN HER HEART. AND OUR LORD WANTS TO EVOKE FROM HER THAT MEDITATION AND CONTEMPLATION OF THE MYSTERY THAT JESUS HAD TO BE ABOUT HIS FATHER'S HOUSE RATHER THAN STAYING WITH MARY AND JOSEPH. AND SHE HAD TO THINK ABOUT AND CONTEMPLATE THAT. AND I'M CONVINCED THAT SHE IS THE ONE WHO IS THE SOURCE FOR THAT EPISODE. KNOWING ABOUT THAT COMES FROM HER, AND THAT CONTEMPLATION THAT SHE DID IS WHAT MADE IT POSSIBLE FOR THE LORD TO USE HER TO HELP CREATE THOSE PASSAGES OF SCRIPTURE. SO HER MEDITATION AND INCOMPREHENSION MAKE FOR A PRESENTATION THAT EVENTUALLY BECOMES PART OF THE BIBLE ITSELF AND HELPS US ENGAGE GOD IN THE SAME MYSTERY. And those mysteries help us understand God better in ourselves. But one of the things I do understand is that we're out of time. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you. May He lead you in all of your ways by His peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And... As I always like to remind you, this network is brought to you by you. That's our Lord inspired Mother Angelica not to do advertising and such. And so we ask you to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll be able to pay our bills too. Thank you, and God bless. Mm